Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, the National Park Service reported that 2019 visitation to the national park system reached 327.5 million visitors. That's a large number of visitors to the parks. Only time will tell whether Congress becomes motivated by that visitation to seriously address the park system's roughly $12 billion maintenance backlog that impacts visitors, employees, and natural resources. We also reported that Grand Teton National Park's aerial culling of non-native mountain goats was halted by a call from the Wyoming governor, who prefers to see the culling done on the ground by volunteers. And unfortunately, we passed on word about more vandalism in Joshua Tree National Park. You can read those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we have a wide-ranging discussion about visiting the parks with Jason Epperson, who produces the America's National Parks podcast. We also invited David and Kay Scott, authors of The Complete Guide to the National Park Lodges, to join the discussion. I also talk with Lynn Riddick about her upcoming series of podcasts on the missions of San Antonio Missions National Historical Park. And we end with a recap of our series on the Colorado River and how it impacts Canyonlands National Park and Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. There are 419 units of the national park system at last count and 62 units officially branded as national parks. Of course, you also have national seashores, national lakeshores, and national recreation areas. Then, too, there are national monuments, national military parks, national preserves, and national rivers. How do you possibly begin to sort through them all when trying to decide where in the national park system you want to explore? To delve into that question, we've invited Jason Epperson, who, along with his wife, produces America's National Parks podcast, and David and Kay Scott, authors of The Complete Guide to the National Park Lodges, of which at least nine editions have been printed. Welcome to The Traveler, all. Nice to meet you. So this might seem like a simplistic undertaking. I mean, can it really be difficult deciding where in the park system to head? Well, it depends on the time of year. If it's in the summer when all of the kids are out of school and the families are traveling, that's maybe when you want to avoid some of the bigger parks that'll be jammed and think more of the smaller parks, smaller areas that aren't as busy. Mm-hmm. Now, last time we were in Zion, it was uh, in which is in Utah. It was essentially a zoo. Uh, <laughs> it the, was. the parking lot was was jammed, and we had to circle the parking lot to find eventually find a place to park. That's changed a lot in the last 10 years. Uh, Zion is a beautiful park and was, for many people, one of the premier undiscovered parks uh, in the country, I think. But that apparently is no longer the case. So um, there are a lot of things that should factor into a person's desire and what parks to, to visit, I think. Yeah, Zion, I know um, the, the shoulder seasons are, are just about disappearing, and uh, it really is tough to, to find a good time um, to visit when you can feel a measure of solitude. Now, now, Jason, you guys are full-time RVers, so you must be pretty strategic in, in planning your travels. 
We are. So we do try to really play those shoulder seasons up. And uh, and during the height of the travel season, we do try to visit some of the 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 lesser known sites. Um, you know, some of those lesser known sites are every bit as spectacular as the big sixty two national parks. And a lot of people just go to the big sixty two because they're named national park. But uh, you can get just as great of an experience, if not better. At, at some of the lesser known places. And sometimes they're right up against the national parks. So you can go to a national monument like Grand Staircase uh, where it's just massive and, and have a blast and really get that solitude. You can get that in the middle of the summer. Um, and you know it's important to realize too that for most of the country, that summer season... Uh, is the height of travel at at a lot of the big parks, but also you know in the south where it can get real hot in the summer, you go to places like Joshua Tree and Death Valley and the Everglades. The summer then is, of course, not the primary travel season. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned um, the the lesser known places, the the unbranded um, national park sites, if you will. And um, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's this thing about checking off national parks. You know, not not that many people want to check off national lakeshores or national seashores, um, although I do because I like the water and I like to paddle. But, you know, we've seen a, a, a movement in recent years to um, change the designation of, of some units that hadn't been national parks. And, of course, we've got... Uh, Indiana Dunes was a lakeshore, now it's a national park. Pinnacles was a national monument, now it's a national park. There are others. White dunes. Great Sand Dunes, didn't they change that to a national park, didn't they? Uh, that's been a national park for a while. White Sands. White Sands was uh, another one. And there, there's talk of rebranding um, Bandelier National Monument as a national park and preserve, and, and that seems to be aimed at um, addressing two things. One, um, to get that national park branding to help the local economy to attract more visitors and also to create a hunting area in the, the preserve, um, which is kind of interesting. But what's that going to do in terms of um, the crowding, Jason? Do you have any, any thoughts on, you know, uh, will it lessen by, by creating more national park, quote unquote, will that lessen the, um, the crowding in some of these other places? Well, the legislators do this because it works. You know, uh, national park status comes from Congress, and often it's tagged into bills that have no relationship uh, to what it, to actually public lands, even. But when a when a national monument or uh, other national park site changes its name to a national park, they do see an increase in in visitors, and it's often meant as a way to boost the local economy. I think. I don't think we're seeing anytime soon where these new national parks are making more room at the other ones. But I guess if we have a lot more new national parks, that could happen. And that may very well be coming as more and more legislators realize uh, how well it works and how many people are looking to go around and check off those those national parks. The, the naming system is, is quite a mess. And that's one of my first lessons to, to newbie national park travelers is that 
you just you you can't go by the name because it, it's a it's a it's conflated between whether the Congress made the name up or whether the president uh, at the time came up with the name names. You know, people think Joshua Tree is all about uh, trees, and of course, it preserves the Joshua trees. But there's so much more. There are a lot of parks that have a name like that um, that that really don't give you an idea of what the whole park is about, and that goes for the the national park or national preserve or national monument status as well. So, you know, it, it's a mess and we'll see what happens in, in, uh, as they continue to add more parks and they're certainly doing at a quicker rate than in the past. David and Kay, I'm, I'm imagining, um, and I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't leave through your book this morning and it's been a while since I looked at it, but there are some, um, park units that you've written about that have lodges that people may not be familiar with, right? Yeah, there's uh, some of the ones. Well, tell tell them some of the ones we like, Kay, that that aren't in na- big national parks, but in yeah, I'm thinking of Oregon Caves. Well, right, there, there's right, a, definitely there's a nice nice lodge in Oregon Caves. There's another one in Canyon de Chelly, uh that uh, I don't know if it it's never been full when we've been there. It's really a nice. It's it's a nice place and it's quiet and uh, it's it's an absolutely stunning park. And you just like the fry bread, though. Yeah, I do. We that's what <laughs> yeah, we usually get yeah. that. Uh, right. And now, then Mesa, along Mesa Verde in Colorado isn't. It's isn't usually crowded. not not right. too crowded. Right. And then the Blue Ridge Parkway has two lodges, uh, both of which we lie. Used to have four, but but they closed two. And uh, the the one on the south end, Pisgah Inn, is actually one of our favorite places to stay, and and operates one of the best restaurants in the national park system. I think. Hmm. I think another thing newbies might consider is not just going to one spot, but they could possibly go um, kind of a a traveling uh, journey. Like if they went to northern Florida, they could hit. Uh, around St. Augustine, there's uh, uh, Castillo de San Marcos is in St. Augustine, and then they could work their way down the coast to uh, Canaveral National Seashore and and just hit different places. Georgia has um, also a couple forts in that same vicinity, so they could do that. Um, Arizona, as, as um, Jason's going to find out, there are several areas uh in Arizona close together yeah. um and yeah like like as david mentioned canyon de Chelly has a lodge but the others uh casa grande ruins is, is really neat we love montezuma's castle and Juana canyon of course and sunset volcano crater i mean all those make uh, flagstaff a, a perfect base camp that you can hit four parks in a short amount of time and i think that's kind of a would be a, a way to get started maybe for some of them uh, if they want to experience the smaller areas. And I think that could be beneficial, actually, because if you go to a Zion on your first visit in July, I think you'll just be overcome by the, the crowds. You know, as opposed to going to those places and, and being overwhelmed by the crowds, I, I think there are a number of um, park sites that 
uh, as you said earlier, Jason, are just as spectacular as the name brand places. I know um, Dinosaur National Monument is one of my favorite units of the park system because you've got two incredible rivers for for whitewater rafting. You've got incredible paleontological um, preserves there, um, great rugged outdoors. It's just an amazing park, and you don't have the crowds there. In Wyoming, um, Devil's Tower is is so unique, um, and it's got a lot of hiking also. And it it was crowded as soon as the movie came out, but then in the crowds have thinned quite a bit. It's got a great campground. We like that campground at Devil's Tower in Wyoming. And another spot mm, a little further down the road in Wyoming is Fort Laramie National Historic Site. Mm-hmm. That's, we, we love that one, too. Um, I wish they put a campground in. I, I, we do, too. Right, right. But they haven't yet. <laughs> no. I guess they just can't afford that one. One more thing. Have you ever been to Grant Corps National Historic Site? Yes. Yeah, but it's yes. been a while. Yeah, it has. When we were coming down from, uh, I love Missoula, and when we, actually, it's when we were going to Missoula. I think we've been there twice, maybe. And then yeah. it's, it's on Deer the way Lodge, to Montana. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's really neat. We did a, we toured the, uh, we toured the home, the ranch house, uh-huh. and mm-hmm. and uh, it's really nice. It's a museum. You know, Lyndon, also, Lyndon Johnson's uh, LBJ ranches, is just, we've probably been there Half a dozen times. Right. I never get tired of it. And they do a tour of the home, and it's usually a different person. We learn something new each time we go through. So that's another thing. Um, I would advise people, if there are tours or guided walks and so forth, be sure and take advantage of those because they're they're usually excellent. And inexpensive. (laughs) Most of the time free, but not always. Yeah, We've been talking with uh, David and Kay Scott, authors of The Complete Guide to the National Park Lodges, and Jason Epperson, who, along with his wife, produces America's National Parks podcast. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty 
and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. So I guess in, in when you're sitting down and trying to figure out where in the national park system to go, I guess one of the, the obvious choices you have to make is, are you looking for culture? Are you looking for history? Or are you looking for incredible scenery? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you know that, I think that's true for some people, but we really don't care. I mean, we, <laughs> we love like, everything. Yeah, whenever we, we've never, we almost never had a bad experience. And, and each place we've enjoyed, they're all different. And whether they offer culture or scenery, that's uh, fine with us. And uh, it's just always, always been a rewarding experience when we've gone to a national park area. And we found uh, the people nice, the rangers are helpful, and uh, most of the visitors are pleasant and it's just, they're just nice places to go. They're nice places to spend some time. Most of the historic places are in the east, uh, Massachusetts, Virginia, Maryland, D.C. area. You'll really have uh, wonderful history there if, you, if that's what you're looking for. And of course, some parks offer all, all of the above. And uh, I, I think that's something that is difficult for people who, you know, that we're going to, have we've got two weeks off we're going to want to see as many national parks as possible this is our big national park road trip uh a lot of times they're they're wanting to get to one drive through it move on to the next one and uh i i think you ought to look at some of the parks that have so much to explore because you know some of these places are thousands of square miles so uh there, there, there is so much to do. Just making your week-long trip at one national park sometimes, um, or or stringing together some smaller sites. Uh, but you have to be careful about putting together a road trip that's going to have you driving as much as you're exploring, uh, right. because you'll end up wasting a lot of time. Yeah, I've been surprised that the number of people who have reached out to the traveler and said, hey, we want to do Yellowstone and Grand Teton and, and Glacier in one week. What do you suggest? <laughs> cut Glacier. Uh, you'll be all right. Well, even cut Grand Teton. But, you know, th- there's an interesting phenomenon going on in, in the 21st century, and it's this whole Instagram and, and counting coup with your, your camera. And I wonder if that doesn't lead some people into trouble and I say that because um, I was talking a few years back with the superintendent of Glacier National Park. And, um, of course, that park was made famous back in the 60s, I think it was, when there were the two grizzly bear attacks at uh, two fatal maulings of, of campers. And so, you know, there was this intimidation factor of, gosh, Glacier's a wild place. I got to really know what I'm doing to go there and explore it. And you come up to the 21st century and people are seeing all these dazzling photos of, uh, you know, Logan Pass and Swift Current Lake and on and on and on, the Grinnell Glacier. And they want to go out and do it, and they may not be prepared for that type of experience. Right. Well, I think that's probably true, sure. yeah. You have to plan to have, just like any other vacation, you have to plan to get the most out of it. it, it the gone, well, well, well gone are the days of, hopping in the car 
and just, you know, living by serendipity and finding what you can along the way, you can, you could still do a bit of that, but traveling through the national parks has become so popular, partly because of this social media aspect. But uh, I think the National Park Service has done a great job of, of, of really advertising that, hey, you should make your vacation an American one and, and come see the parks. And, and you'd have to, you know, look at the guidebooks. You have to go online, do some research, w- watch YouTube channels and, and learn what are, what are going to be the best hikes for me. Uh, what are the best places to stay? How do I get those reservations? When do those res- reservations open up? Um, uh, when is the best time of year to visit this park? There's a lot. It's it's like planning a Disney trip. You 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 want to get the most out of your money so that you're not waiting three hours in line for a ride. And that's that's similar at national parks. Yeah, and if you're go- going from sea level to a place like Rocky Mountain National Park and going up to the high country, you're going to quickly realize that your lungs aren't uh, tuned up for that type of elevational change. Well, Jason's right. When David and I first started camping way back in the dinosaur age, practically, there wasn't a lot of information out there. And we'd go to a park and kind of have planned our itinerary, maybe three days there. And we'd realize there's so much more, you know, why didn't we stay longer? Or why, you know, why didn't we plan to stay longer? But now the information is available. It's online. It's in guidebooks. It's everywhere. So people really do need to do plan before they head out. But, you know, the other side of that is we've, we've taken off a lot of summers when we had a Volkswagen bus, and we would just take off, and we didn't have any plans. And they were, they were great summers. Uh, we would run across something that would surprise us, and that was great. We, and uh, we just drove around the country for three months, uh, summer after summer, and it was a great life. I really enjoyed that. But not a lot of people have that opportunity. No, like but I think do. you can plan too much. And Yeah, if you're <laughs> willing to just take what comes and, and change your plan up as, as much as possible, you then you can do that. Um, but if you've got this short amount of time and you must go to Yellowstone and Glacier and Grand Tetons, <laughs> well, you're going to want to be very careful about that because uh, because you're going to want to be able to experience something when you get there. Uh, if if you right. don't plan, you you may end up, you know, at that Zion, you may end up waiting Just a very long through. time for a shuttle or, or standing in line for the Angels Landing hike, uh, that sort of stuff. You know, yeah. another thing, Kurt, you might want to talk about uh, is the passes that are available, uh, the National Park passes that I don't think everyone knows about those. No, and they can be a real um, um, money saver if you're going to a number of parks in in one um, 12-month period. Um, There's a whole slew of federal federal recreation passes that uh, are good from the day you buy them um, as opposed to a, a calendar year. I'm fortunate to say that uh, I've reached that age where I've got my my senior pass. I'm good for the rest of my life. You're but, kidding uh, me. Uh, hard to believe, believe, isn't that. it? Yeah. Well, and then if a family has a fourth grader, the family gets into the park free. What I'd like to see is an incentive program. And by that, I mean, we, we did a, a Father's Day trip down to the North Rim of Grand Canyon a couple of years ago, and uh, I had 
my my annual pass at the time, and uh, my two sons each had to you know pay to get into the park. And it'd be nice if if there was an incentive program where if within a week or two weeks they took the receipt from that twenty dollar fee, whatever it was, and they could apply that towards an annual pass. I wonder if that wouldn't spur more more purchases of the annual passes. You can do that with a senior pass. You can. You <laughs> well, can. Yeah. now that they've changed the price of the senior yeah. pass, you, right? It's twenty dollars a year or eighty dollars a lifetime, but you can use the twenty dollars. Yeah. Uh, toward the $80 if you can live long enough. <laughs> and if you hold on to your receipts. Yeah, that, yes. Yeah, yes. that's always an issue. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, you know, for the, the first or second time um, park traveler, what tips should they keep in mind when they're looking to, to book a room in a park lodge? Well, you know, you don't want to go into a big park like Yellowstone unless you've got a reservation. You can often find rooms. Uh, it may not be where you want to stay, but it's just too far to go somewhere else and try to find a room, and you may not be able to find one at all. So you need to you need to book early, and and if the rates go down, you can always cancel and rebook. But uh, I think most of them have like a three week window where people can cancel. So three weeks out, if you haven't been able to find a room, three weeks out from when you plan to be there, you might try again. When we were on the road, we we were trying to find a road in a room in Bryce Canyon and uh, we couldn't do it and couldn't do it. And we just kept after it. And finally uh, they opened up, uh, but also be flexible, be flexible. If, if you go to a, you're going to go to Grand Teton, be flexible on where you might want to stay. Uh, don't have your heart set on uh, a particular place. And that's true in, in Glacier National Park also. Well, you know, and that's also true with, uh, cabins like cabins with baths and without baths, which you'll find in, in Yellowstone and some other parks. And if you need to, go ahead and book a cabin without a bath and just keep calling back to check to see if one with a bath has opened up. Yeah. So flexibility, I think, is one thing it's, that's important. No, absolutely it is. I mean, a lot of places you hear, you know, book six months out or book seven months out from your trip. And sometimes you might end up paying the highest rate that the concessionaire will charge. And if you um, wait a little bit longer, those rates might go down as, uh, you know, occupancy doesn't rise up to um, expectations. Right. Well, and you can always, if you have that high rate and it's come down and you've got, it's in your cancellation time, cancel one and just book, book at the cheaper rate. Right. And and the shoulder seasons when they're when they're not so busy. If if you have the opportunity to travel, then the whole experience can be a lot a lot better. Uh, we went to Voyagers uh, National Park and stayed at Kettle Falls Hotel, and for one night we were the only people there. I think uh-huh. they were in the closing stage of the right. of the lodge. Right. We had a great time. It, it was the weather was good and it was a little cool, but uh, it was I don't know what month it. Must have been September, October. Uh, when I think we the end there. of September. But it was great. After after school vacations ended, and everybody it was. Right. Yeah, that's right. right. Kids were back in school. Yeah. So, Jason, you're a full time RVer. So, what what tips can you give other RVers who who haven't experienced the national park uh, campground settings? Well, most of the national park uh, campgrounds are available on Recreation.gov. Um, so that's where you want to go to book them and you can, it's actually a fairly good site. They've retooled it and 
you can uh, you can see all the details about every site, the length, the uh, you know, and what days it's available. Um, so, what I like to do is go on to recreation.gov and see that calendar of availability for the park. Because if you don't, you know, get your reservation in early enough, most of these National Park Service campgrounds do fill. So you can see what days you might be able to book and, you know, then put in for your vacation with your vacation time with work or, or what have you. National parks, a lot of people buy their RV. and The, the length of their RV is, is something that often gets talked about um, when it comes to visiting national parks. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about, uh, you know, what the right length of RV to have for a national park is. The reality is that there actually aren't that many campgrounds for RVs in the 62 national parks. There, there certainly are some. There, there are quite a few. But um, there are a lot more campgrounds available, usually right outside the parks. Often there's a national forest butted up right against the national park. Often there's commercial campgrounds available. So you can always use those as an option as well. But it is nice to stay in national park campgrounds when you can because you're right there and, uh, and often it can be up to an hour drive or more into a park. So for places like Zion, the Watchman Campground is one of the nicest campgrounds in the National Park Service, uh, but it books up quickly. If you can stay there, then you don't have to stay out of the park and take the shuttle to the park and transfer to the other shuttle that takes you into the park. You're right there in town. And, and whenever you can do that, the better, even if you're not going to have full hookups. So most National Park Service campgrounds are not going to have sewer hookups. The ones that do have sewer hookups are usually operated by a concessionaire and you're going to pay a premium for those, usually. Uh, you're going to pay similar to what you'd pay at a commercial campground just outside of the park. And usually those National Park Pass discounts, like the Senior Pass and the Access Pass for disabled people, uh, do not apply to concessionaire-run campgrounds. And, uh, and unfortunately, those are sort of like the best, like Fishing Bridge at, at Yellowstone and uh, Trailer Village at Grand Canyon. Those sorts of places are... They're premium. They're they're the best places to be for the park, but you you might end up paying like fifty bucks a night for one of those. So if you're looking at national parks as a an affordable camping trip, you're really going to want to be looking at some of those smaller campgrounds, tent camping, even um, those places where uh, it's just not quite as popular and stay out of of the way a little bit. Yeah, and for there are our viewers out there in the audience today who are curious about uh, national park campgrounds, go to nationalparkstraveler.org and search for RVing the parks. We've got a a number of stories um, written by a full time RVer like Jason that uh, tackle some of the issues you run into in exploring the parks, including uh, the length of your RV as well as the um, whether there are hookups or not out there. Um, Recreation.gov. When it works, it's wonderful. Um, sometimes it doesn't work. We've we've had a lot of a lot of questions, uh, conspiracy theory that uh, 
some there's some uh, black market uh, folks who have figured out how to uh, game the system and and reserve a, a whole block of sites. I know I've had my issues with it. Um, so if you're going the recreation.gov route, tread carefully and um, pack a measure of patience because um, it's not the easiest. One thing to know is you know, recreation.gov also, uh, well, it's it's part of Reserve America. It's sort of a white labeled version of Reserve America, which is a bigger website that has a lot more uh, state parks and even some commercial campgrounds. The, the issue with public campgrounds, whether it's federal or state, is often that it is very affordable, if not free, to cancel your reservation or move your reservation. So a lot of times when campgrounds open up for booking, people book lots of dates that they don't intend to use. Yeah. Um, so usually you'll get really uh, you'll you'll get really concerned when that that season opening happens and all the campsites are full, but you will start to see cancellations happening closer to your dates very often. And the way we travel full time, that's how we book most of our National Park Service campgrounds is at the last minute because they do have lots of cancellations. Yeah, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. I know the Needles Campground in Canyonlands National Park has 26 sites and they are golden if you can reserve one of those. Right, um, right. <laughs> we've been talking today with uh, Jason Epperson, uh, who produces America's National Parks podcast with his wife. Uh, they are full-time RVers traveling the national park system. And David and Kay Scott, uh, authors of The Complete Guide to the National Park Lodges, who over the decades hate to say that, David and Kay, sorry, um, have visited all the national parks out there and uh, offer a wealth of uh, advice and information in their, their book, The Complete Guide to the National Park Lodges. Thank you so much for joining me today, folks. It's been fun kicking around these uh, different issues um, when it comes to visiting the national parks. And uh, I'd certainly like to uh, regroup uh, maybe six months down the road and, and try it again. Thanks for having me. Good. Good. Thanks for the invitation. Right. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Across the country, there are more than 400 units of the national park system. They protect some of the country's best scenic beauty, along with its rich cultural and historical background. One of those parks is San Antonio Missions National Historical Park in Texas, which protects and interprets four missions that date to the early 18th century. San Antonio resident Lynn Riddick has been preparing a series of four podcasts on the park and joins us today to provide a preview into her series. 
Welcome, Lynn. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So, as I mentioned, San Antonio Missions is not your typical national park. What makes it so intriguing and, and worth visiting? Well, first of all, the missions here are really the most complete and most intact example of Spain's efforts to control the northern frontier of New Spain. There's so much authenticity that remains in the missions regarding workmanship and materials, even though some parts were restored over the years. There were many missions built all over the American Southwest, as you know, but many have disappeared or fallen into disrepair. The Spanish crown and its agents, who were the Franciscan missionaries, pulled off quite a feat, I think. The missions allowed them to fight off threats to land claim for Spain and take native bands of Indian hunters and gatherers and turn them into Spanish citizens loyal to the king by turning them into Catholics and teaching them how to survive on their own. The missions are unique because they're so close together and they're still in fairly good shape. It was this concentration that allowed the missions to be successful because you've got safety and strength and numbers, and then there's relative ease of the delivery of supplies, the sharing of knowledge, and ultimately the ability of Native people to have a whole new set of skills that enabled them to be independent and thrive. Wasn't wasn't that kind of presumptuous, though? I mean, hadn't the Native cultures survived there for centuries? Why did the, the missionaries think they could do a better job of it? That's a great question, because you do wonder about the Native people that live there, and it was a hard life. They were starving. They were worried about food all the time. They were roaming around trying to um, move with the seasons and trying to find the best place to live and eat. And, you know, they had to worry about the weather. You have diseases from Europeans coming into the bands of Indians and taking its toll on them. So I think from what I have learned, they were um, very willing to see what life would be in the missions. And once they saw that it provided some sustenance and some security, more and more Native people were willing to join into the mission life. Yeah. Now, there at San Antonio, you've got four missions in the park itself, and then there's also the Alamo, which is a a state of Texas park. Is that correct? That's correct. It's owned by the state of Texas. Yeah. Um, So how how are the four missions, and maybe even including Alamo, the Alamo, how are they different, or are are they different? Well, they are different. First of all, they all look different, Um, even though you kind of might expect them to look the same since they were founded roughly during the same time period and built so close together. For example, each mission was basically built within a square or a rectangular shape with walls all around the perimeter. And there was a large grassy central plaza in the middle, which is still there. Each mission has a church and each of the churches look different from each other. They are still in good shape and functional, although there have been restorations made over the years. And with the exception of Mission San Jose, the authenticity of the materials used in the reconstruction and design uh, and even the workmanship are still there. The limestone structures still standing in each mission are also different. At Mission San Juan, um, there's remnants of a church that was never completed and remnants of a burial site, which the other missions don't have. And 
I think the thing to think about during a visit is what the native people might've been like. And like we were talking about what conditions they were having to endure to be led to leave such a different way of life and what kind of a transition they must've gone through to learn so many things that they had never seen before. You know, imagine having to learn to cut stone or milk a goat or carpentry or cutting trenches to re, uh, reroute the water for crops. Uh, so that's something to think about when you visit the missions. And I also like to think about what the Franciscan friars were going through, you know, how challenging it must have been for them as well, trying to teach a specific set of religious doctrine and rules and religious events to folks that didn't speak the language. And they had to have been dedicated and patient, but they probably had to be pretty strict too. Yeah. Are, are the missions um, within walking distance of each other? They are. They're two or three miles apart and you can walk. Um, so each one is two or three miles apart. Yeah. So if okay. you like to walk, it's, it's a nice walk in between and some parts of the river between when I say river, I mean the San Antonio river, some parts have been restored with walkways. So uh, if you don't, actually walk to and from the missions, definitely take a walk along the restored part of the San Antonio River. Now with four missions there, it's, it sounds like you could spend a lot of time exploring this national park. Um, any, any suggestions on how long visitors should set aside for their exploration of the missions? I would say if you like taking your time, you can easily see all the missions in four or five hours. You can do faster than that, of course. But if you start with Mission San Jose, which is in the, the second of the chain going south from the Alamo, you can have the um, option of going into a visitor center and watching a movie or seeing the museum that's there. And it really is the only of the four missions in the park that is staffed by National Park Rangers. So you can take a ranger-led tour the other missions are not staffed, so you can explore on your own. Sometimes you might stumble upon a volunteer who's giving an informal tour. Is there any particular order, I mean, besides um, hitting San Jose mission first? No, just follow the line. They're not too far apart, so you can do them in any order of you, that you want, and um, you're not going to miss out on anything if you do them out of order. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, you live there in San Antonio, and I'm sure you've been to the missions countless times. You're going to help um, bring them alive, so to speak, to our audience. Um, you've been able to capture some incredible um, sounds already, haven't you? I have. Yeah, I was able to um, catch a Sunday mariachi service. I got some nice sound of the church bell tolling and some um, of the tours going on. So I. I'm looking forward to presenting this story of what happened in San Antonio because what's really unique about it and what really makes it a UNESCO World Heritage Site in addition to a National Historical Park is that the cultural significance here is so exceptional. You know, the story of Spain's lasting influence on this area through the merging of cultures is what the missions are all about. The lasting Tejano culture that lives and thrives today in San Antonio with you know, people and life centered on faith and families and 
music and food. I mean, that's the genesis of San Antonio and the, um, the fact that it's, you know, the cultural significance is so exceptional and, you know, really priceless and irreplaceable. And it's very much worth holding on to and protecting for future generations. Yeah. And you were able to catch up with some of the park staff there to help uh, tell this incredible story. I did. Um, I've talked to Tom Castanos, who is um, the educational coordinator and a park ranger there. And he's so super knowledge uh, knowledgeable. He has a great grasp of history. He knows so many facts. Um, he's seen documents that the friars had to put together 300 years ago. And he just is a great source of information and you know, very interesting to listen to. Now we're going to kick off your your series next weekend, and uh, it's a four-part series. What are you going to uh, start us off with? So we're going to start with Mission San Jose, and that is the only mission that has had extensive reconstruction, and that's because it really lends to a better visual experience for people that are coming to visit there. It shows you how the walls actually were, how the bastions were, some of the facilities and living quarters. So we're going to walk through there and talk about some of the features there with Tom Castanos. And we're going to talk about the indigenous people and what brought them to the missions and how they uh, got started with building the missions and building the gardens and creating the ranches and getting started. So that's what we're going to do first. The second piece will be on Mission Concepcion, and I'm going to talk and delve a little bit more into how the specific teachings regarding religion happened and how the teaching of other skills came about. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the architectural features of the missions as well. You know, I'm I'm hate to admit it, but I've never been to uh, San Antonio Missions National Historical Park. It's on my to-do list, and it's it's jumped up a few uh, levels. Um, just talking to you about what you've experienced there, and and really looking forward to how your series comes together and and what we learn from it. Is there any one particular time of year that is especially worth visiting the missions? Well, that's hard to say because there are things happening all year round. For example, there's a Music Under the Stars summer concert series fundraiser. There's a Mexican art show and sale. There is, this is really interesting, there's a ranger-led bike ride to see the migrations of monarch butterflies coming up from Mexico to the north, Hmm. um, northern part of the United States. That sounds really fascinating. There's healthy heart walks. There's yoga twice a month. So there's a lot going on most of the year. To me, what is really nice, and it's happened to me several times when I've gone to the mission, is that I've chanced upon a mass being celebrated in one of the churches. And that's something you really don't expect. I don't know if you've ever walked into a basilica or a cathedral in Europe when mass was being said. And it's to me, it's just a special feeling to know that despite all the grandeur and history and all of the art and wood carvings and elaborate floor tiles and visitors who come to see all that. The, the church continues to be an important place of worship for local people. And that's the same feeling you get here if you stumble upon a mass. Although I have to say that the churches are very small and very modest compared to anything you're going to see in Europe. And here's a tip. If, um, if you want to try to 
get there and observe a mass or participate in the mass, you have to either be there on time or just be satisfied peeking through the door because they don't allow visitors to pop in and out during services. That's good to know. That's good to know. Well, Lynn, I really appreciate that sneak peek into the San Antonio Missions National Historical Park. And I must say that um, just listening to that sneak peek, I'm really looking forward to your series. And it's raised uh, San Antonio Missions up a number of spots on my National Park to-do checklist. Thanks, Kurt. I really appreciate the opportunity to share what I've learned about the park. And uh, hopefully we'll get you here someday. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. During the past two weeks, Patrick Cohn produced a series of stories that looked at how the health, or the lack of health, of the Colorado River impacts Canyonlands National Park and Glen Canyon National Recreation Area in Utah. Those stories were made possible through a grant from the Water Desk at the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado. We conclude the series with what we're calling Voices from the River. Patrick interviewed state and government officials, as well as area residents and river runners for his series. What follows are some of the poignant thoughts those individuals relayed to Patrick. Mike DeHoff has long guided whitewater trips on the Colorado River to Canyonlands National Park. He and some of his compatriots are watching as some rapids, which have been long buried by the waters of Lake Powell, are re-emerging. So Cataract Canyon is a 41-mile stretch of river below the confluence of the Green and the Colorado. Um, it used to be when Lake Powell was completely full, it inundated 65% of the canyon and you would run the big drops, which are some of the biggest rapids in the canyon, and sometimes while you were scouting the last big drop, you would see jet skis and houseboats or what have you. And around 2000, that all changed. There was a big drought, and the reservoir receded 100, 150 feet in a very rapid rate. And we started seeing rapids come back out. We started seeing the river flowing across its own sediments, and it slowly was carving those out. And we thought that, that this was just going to be a very short-term thing, and the lake was going to go back up to its regular reservoir level. But that didn't happen. And over the course of the last 15 years, the river has slowly started carving back more and more rapids in that area. Five years ago, 
uh, few of us really noticed that things were changing and that kept on changing. Um, myself, two other guys, Bago Gerhardt and Peter Lefebvre, we one day said to each other, wow, someone should really be keeping track of how much things are changing down there. And it was Pete who said, have you ever seen that movie Chasing Ice about the glaciers receding up in Alaska? And I said, yeah, I've seen that movie. It was a great movie. He said, I wish someone did that with what's going on down in Cataract Canyon. And after a while, we figured out that all of us, myself, Bago, and Peter, were all taking pictures of the changes that were happening. And we decided to start putting them all together. We then started matching all these photos that we had with places that we could tell were pre-reservoir affected. And then we also got our hands on old guidebooks and old river maps to help tell us where rapids before the reservoir were. And just to answer the simple question of when are other rapids going to come back, where are they going to come back, and what are they going to look like when they do? So in the spring of 2019, we knew there was going to be really high water down in Cataract Canyon. Um, we also knew that there was a very good chance that Gypsum Canyon Rapid could come back out because the reservoir was really low. So we got we contacted Glen Canyon National Recreation Area and got a uh, scientific monitoring permit to be able to put a time-lapse camera at Gypsum Canyon Rapid. And it has been rolling down there since we put it in in March. Uh, Gypsum Canyon Rapid has come back to the point of being a riffle right now. And we think it's within 10 feet of being back out in its actual location. Granted, there's still got to be a lot of mud that moves from it. It really is happening right before your eyes. Yeah. Like we literally could see banks collapsing. You could see how uh, silt is getting flushed out a river or side streams and the side canyons. It's all just trying to restore itself down there. Terry Fisk is the Chief of Resource Stewardship and Science for the Southeast Utah Group of National Parks, which includes Canyonlands. Climate change plays in is that, you know, we can't really depend on the past as a guide to what to expect in the future. I don't know right now um, that, that we can point to any particular thing that has happened as a result of climate change related to water. But I think the overall, the next couple of decades, going to be critical for us and, and interesting, but probably not interesting in a very satisfactory way. Global circulation models, the ensemble models that, that are looked at, um, the Four Corners area, and, and in, in particularly San Juan County and Grand County, Utah, we're already at two degrees C above pre-industrial. So we're going into situations right now in our parks where the historical record, we're in the 98th, 99th percentile of that record for, say, mean warmest temperatures over a month, warmest minimum temperatures over a month. So, you know, the difference between now and what the triggering data can tell us is that we're in an unexplored environment for CO2 in the atmosphere and so on that, that, that you know, we really haven't experienced in quite a few million years. We're interested in with, say, the changes that we, we do not want to see on the river and the changes that we are 
would like to prevent is long-term um, reduction in flow that has a, a negative effect on ecosystem function, whether that's teeny species or riparian um, communities, cottonwood galleries, those kinds of things. And I, I don't know that we can really prevent that, but we need to be able to mitigate to the best of our ability. In the last 20 years, we have seen in Canyonlands and other, other reaches on, on both the Green and the Colorado is that um, channel narrowing and channel simplification. We have overall less sediment coming into the rivers from the big basins, but then episodic inputs from smaller tributaries. So we are looking at climate change uh, and what the potential effects of climate change will be on our vegetation community uh, and you know, broadly defined grasslands, shrublands, and then pinyon juniper woodlands. Do we have some species that maybe can be fairly well adapted or could be induced to be adapted to warmer conditions, more arid conditions? You see huge areas where um, juniper has been really stressed in the last couple of years. So it's really, it seems quite spotty, but fairly widespread. Professor Jack Smith is the director of the Center for Colorado River Studies at Utah State University. Lake Powell is the second largest reservoir in the United States a very close second to Lake Mead. What we know is that there will be an ever decreasing amount of water flowing into Lake Powell. But, but what we also know is it'll be highly variable. There will be more drought years than big water years. Every once in a while, it'll be a big winter and we'll get a big snow year. Those will be fewer, but they will still come, so it'll be highly variable. It's about how society makes decisions about um, what to do with that water. The fate of the reservoir is contingent partly on climate change and partly on society's response to climate change. You could pre preferentially store your water, albeit less water, but you could preferentially store it in Lake Powell. Thereby, Powell would be full. You could preferentially store it in Lake Mead. And Lake Powell could be empty almost all the time. Right now, what we do is we keep the contents of Powell and Mead equal. So you basically operate the two reservoirs as if they're one, except that politically, the uh, Lake Powell is in the upper basin, Lake Mead is at the lower basin. There's political shenanigans. So the fate of Lake Powell and the fate of Glen Canyon NRA and the centerpiece of its reservoir is determined by the political agreements about how to share the pain of drought. The renegotiation of that pain, it's those kind of negotiations that will carry the fate of Glen Canyon NRA, which now has the centerpiece of reservoir recreation. Reservoir recreation is going to be the furthest thing from anybody's mind. It's pretty much an irrelevancy. 
longer and more intense droughts will come. And therefore, the only focus of management of Lake Powell will be to do whatever it takes to meet the needs of 40 million people, not any houseboat person. And to assert otherwise is just to be silly. It's about consumptive uses and losses. I really think that um, it's important to not just, to not say, oh, the Green River's changed because of Flaming Gorge Dam. So if one cares about the integrity of the Green River in Canyonlands, then one cares about how water is managed in the Yampa River Basin. On the Colorado River side, well, I think 520, 520,000 acre feet of water is diverted to the Colorado Front Range. Climate is warming. There is a strong correlation between a warming climate and decreased runoff in the Colorado River. John Weisheit is the Colorado River keeper. Is the Colorado River healthy? The answer is no. Um, the demands on the Colorado are too extreme. We're suffering uh, potential shortages, um, reservoirs going empty, hydropower stopping, um, downstream ecosystems below dams crashing from too water, water that's too warm, from um, invasive species, uh, lack of sediment for beaches, uh, changing national park dynamics all throughout the basin. And so, you know, what do we do about this? Uh, people want to make changes because they think climate change is going to diminish flows. And yeah, that's all true, but climate has extremes. Um, you know, it has large floods, you know, can our, can our dams and reservoirs manage these things? Uh, is there a possibility that this infrastructure could be damaged? Could, would 40 million people be disappointed? You know, my position is we just need to adapt to climate. We, we've never adapted to climate. We, we assume what our climate hydrology is without really looking at it in the broader term of uh, history, which, which is, can only be answered by paleoclimatologists. So we need to pay attention to these people and, and uh, get a realistic idea of what the Colorado River can and, or what it can do and what it can't do. The other thing that uh, alarms me is this, the snow levels between 8,000 feet and 10,000 feet are very different. They, that snow usually melts and doesn't hang around. I think it was really obvious this year. Um, we had a good snowpack, but it all came from 8,000. I mean, it all came from 10,000 feet and above. The other thing that's alarming is the monsoons have changed. You know, that moisture is really important to Arizona, New Mexico, the Grand Canyon, um, Utah. does kind of gets residual monsoons, but it's important to our highlands and our high desert. And that's going away. They're, they're not as frequent when they do come. They're, it's not as much volume. Um, so that's, that's actually the buzz in the science community. They don't really have an answer for it quite yet. You know, there's not a lot of cottonwood generation going 
you know, but the um, the pe- what we call peach wheat leaf willow in Utah, Grand Canyon people call it um, Goodings willow. I mean, it's off the charts. There's thousands, and I mean, I used to be able to count these plants on my two hands. Extreme enduring drought and extreme floods because those two things are could bring the whole system down and what are you going to tell 40 million people we're sorry we just need to adapt the climate we've never done it in our history it's about time marlon duke works for the bureau of reclamation and explains how climate change might change the operations of glen canyon dam we operate glen canyon dam and Hoover Dam at Lake Mead, we operate those two reservoirs together, which means uh, we coordinate their operations so that we can balance the the contents of the reservoir. It's really difficult to forecast accurately what's gonna happen next week, two weeks, let alone two years or five years down the road. How much water are we gonna be releasing from Glen Canyon Dam? Uh, Is Lake Mead gonna be operated under any kind of a shortage condition? There's always an opportunity to make adjustments based on the real snowpack that we get over the winter. We have eight generators at that power plant at Glen Canyon. At any given time, we might have a generator or two that are down for routine maintenance. That facility provides the water storage account for the upper basin. So the upper basin states uh, have certainty and reliability and, and can provide that certainty and reliability to the lower basin in the, in the form of uh, obligated water flows uh, under the 1922 compact. How this all started was, was a need to store water. There's a lot of, there's a lot of attention right now on, on climate change and, and what that means. Uh, the, best, the best that the climate scientists can tell us right now is that things are probably gonna be more variable. And as weather patterns change, uh, it, it might mean that our, you know, our rain or our water comes more in the form of rain than it does snow. We're 19 years into one of the worst droughts in recorded history, and and we've gotten 19 years in, and we have not had to have any kind of significant, uh, you know, big big shortage declarations on the river, and I think that that's a testament to. The, the value that these reservoirs bring to the 40 million people who rely on water from the Colorado River. We can store, we can store four times the annual flow of the river behind these dams. Uh, and that, you know, that has been the, that has be really been the saving point for, for this basin over these 19 years of drought. Taylor Hawes with the Nature Conservancy is the Colorado River Program Director. We are overusing the river. We're, you know, using more than the river provides. 50 to 100 years, we've, we've allocated about 17.5 million acre feet, and the river's been providing about 12.5 acre feet. So we've got this, what we call the math problem. We can flex when we have these continued dry times and um, and adapt to the, this drier future that we're expecting. Uh, and recognizing this is a really variable system, so we will probably still have good years here and there, and how can we make sure that we can optimize that those good years and uh, survive the dry years? Basically, the, the decision makers in the Colorado River Basin over the last 100 years ignored the science. 
this has always been a variable system and it's getting more variable. So we're seeing, you know, bigger swings every year. We just can't predict how this is going to go and we could, you know, fall off the cliff next year. The system, you know, continues to get drier steadily and the monsoons are completely disruptive and erratic. The, the greater demands, greater reliance on our reservoirs, so drawing those reservoirs down, end up putting us in a, a hole for the coming year that most people we're not quite thinking about yet. Scott Vanderkoy with the U.S. Geological Survey is the chief of the Grand Canyon Monitoring and Research Center. I mean, it, it has to do with, uh, you know, the amount of water that's, uh, you know, precipitation that's coming into the southwest, likely the form of that water because timing of runoff matters, whether it's coming in snow or rain. Um, so it's not only the amount, but the type of precipitation, you know, in terms of runoff and the timing of that runoff as well. Yeah, how full that reservoir is um, matters a lot because it's, yeah, the temperature of the water that comes down, it's also the nutrient content. Changes have been really rapid. Um, if you... You know, essentially, we've been dealing in a really long-term drought in the Southwest, um, essentially since 2000. Uh, and, you know, we periodically have wet years in that mix, but uh, a lot less water coming into those reservoirs. And, you know, what, what we have seen as, um, uh, particularly Lake Powell, as that has lowered, that's affected uh, water quality. Uh, that's released, you know, the quality of the water that's released from the dam. You know, water temperature controls all biological processes in rivers. In a, a, a point where the water coming out of the dam is, is relatively warm versus what it was, say, when the reservoir was full back in the 80s and 90s. The range is, um, uh, previously when the reservoir was full, the temperatures we would see um, were probably would peak out at maybe 10 or 11 degrees Celsius. Uh, this year, dam releases peaked at 16 degrees Celsius. But in, in other years, we're still seeing temperatures 13 to 14 degrees C. We're, we're in a, a really good area, a, a really, we kind of call it, a, we call it a Goldilocks zone, to where temperatures are, are warm enough that the native fish can grow, can reproduce, do well in the main stem river, but it's not so warm that it advantages warm water invasive species that we do not want. Things like smallmouth bass, northern pike, walleye. You know, as that reservoir drops, um, further up in the reservoir, there's uh, there's sediments that have been deposited when the reservoir was full. And so lower down, you get big influxes of, of runoff and they resuspend that sediment. That can affect water quality down in the reservoir, in turn can affect water quality. This podcast is part of a series of articles on the Colorado River and its impacts on national parks in Utah. It was supported by a grant from the Water Desk, an independent journalism initiative based at the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Environmental Journalism. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, Lynn Riddick will be back with her first installment on San Antonio Mission's National Historical Park. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. Mm-hmm.
The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.